So if you haven't uh, joined us, and today I'll just assume is your first uh, Sunday, um, as we've been walking through the book of Revelation, you have to first understand what, what is the context uh, as we pick up in chapter three. And, and here's the context. First and foremost, uh, Revelation uh, was written by the apostle John. Uh, John was exiled uh, to this island, the island of Patmos, and, and he is there, and it's the latter half of the first century, towards the end, 95, 96 AD, and he is there, and he gets caught up in this incredible vision uh, with an angel, and then literally the glorified Christ, the glorified Jesus uh, is there, and, and he is in awe, uh, he, he starts describing it in chapter 1. Uh, and then Jesus tells him, I want you to, to write. In fact, in Revelation, I'll just read it. In chapter 1, verse 19, uh, Jesus tells him, he says, Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. So, so he says, I'm, I'm going to ask you to write down what's what's going on, and you're going to write this to the seven churches, the seven historical churches in Asia Minor, um, and, and so there's a specific message that, that Christ has for every one of them. Uh, what he's doing is, is revealing what's actually going on in these churches, and so he's, he says, I want you to send this message uh, to them, and you're going to tell them what is going on and what's to come. But the thing that we cannot miss as we uh, have been working through that, and today we're going to look at uh, the sixth and seventh churches uh, that he writes to, we cannot miss chapter one, verse one, because it gives us the whole purpose of this book. And this book, the purpose, it says, is it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, so at the end of the day, uh, every verse that we look at, every chapter we read, every rabbit trail we go down or are tempted to go down, it all has to point back to Jesus. And if it doesn't, we're missing the point. Okay, so this is this book, at the heart of it is the revelation of Jesus. He is pulling back the curtain to show us what is and what is to come. And even as we see these words written to these seven churches back in those days, we know because of what it says. It says, he who has ears, let him hear. In other words, it may have been written to them, but it is for us today. And, and so, and, and it's very relevant as we're going to see uh, in these churches. So let's pick up in Revelation chapter uh, 3. Uh, in, we'll start with verses 7 uh, and 8 as he addresses a church. And we see the writing is in red. This is Jesus' words to the church. And it says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Okay, so Philadelphia, we're familiar with that name. It's like the first term, you're like, okay, brotherly love, get it, all right? So it's, a, it's this city that was situated uh, in a strategic place on the main route of what was called the Imperial uh, Post. Uh, and the city, it was called the Gateway to the East. So it's a very strategic location. 
in the book of Acts, when you see uh, Jesus followers taking the gospel and the leaders, they were identifying strategic strategic places um, and strategic places meant well-traveled uh, areas that were easy to get through. Um, and, and so uh, this is a strategic city and Jesus introduces himself as the Holy One. Now this title was given uh, to God throughout the Old Testament, but here and then in elsewhere throughout the New Testament, we see it ascribed to Jesus. And what it's communicating is just his holiness. In other words, his separateness. He is separate from creation. He is separate from any sin. Uh, He is pure. He is the true one. He's the true God, distinct from all others that people in those days were were worshiping. He is the one true uh, God. Says he has the key of David. Now, this, this is almost word for word from Isaiah 22, 22. In Isaiah 22, 22, it says, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut and he shall shut and none shall open. Okay, so in Isaiah, when he writes this hundreds of years earlier, this is a prophecy about the authority of a successor to the throne of David. The authority, the, uh, remember the key holder is the one who has the authority to let someone in or keep them out. And so we see that these same words are ascribed to Jesus and, and it's once again communicating to us that he's the fulfillment uh, of, of prophecy from the lineage and the line of David. He's the Davidic Messiah. He alone has the authority to allow people into the kingdom of God. I, I love how it, how it says that he is the one who opens or shuts the doors. And what he opens, no one shuts. What this is speaking to is his power, right? If he decides to open something, no one can shut it. If there's a door that he shuts, no one can open. So he is all powerful. Okay, so, so he's communicating, this is who I am, and I'm seeing what's going on with you. And so let me share it with you. And he tells this church, he says, listen, I know your faithful service on my behalf. I know your faithfulness to the gospel. And what we see here, he doesn't correct this church at all. If you've been hanging uh, with us through these uh, churches as we've been walking through them, uh, often you see him starting off by correcting the church or he goes into a time of correcting after he praises them, but he doesn't correct them at all because what they were doing was right. And the reason they were doing it was for the right motives. They loved Jesus and they were serving him with all that they had. But we see that this church has limitations, right? He, they have limited strength in their own eyes. They weren't this large uh, and wealthy church and, and they carried little, if any, influence in the actual city. And so what, what we see is this church that, that's this small, uh, people look at it and go, that's an insignificant church, nothing special about it. So uh, essentially it's, it's just looked down upon and it's persecuted in this city. But what we see is this church being faced with these constant trials and this opposition. They stayed true to the gospel. And so Jesus makes a promise to this faithful community of believers. It's the promise of an open door that no one will be able to close, he says. Now, 
there's, there's two ways you can, you can take this, okay? And, and it can be either or. Um, but some believe that that open door, what he's saying here is, I have, I have opened the door of salvation for you as you faithfully endured, and no one can close that. You are safe and you are secure. So whatever happens, no one can take you from that. Uh, the other way we can take this, which is also great, very encouraging, is how he has opened a door for ministry, opened a door for the gospel to go forth and to be received and for evangelism to take place in that community. And so he's telling them, I have opened this door for you. Yeah, you may be small in stature. You may have a lot of empty seats. You may not have a lot of wealth or a lot of money, and it may be a struggle for you, but I have opened a door of evangelism for you that nobody can close. And we see that wording, that phrasing used throughout the New Testament in the book of Acts. We see Paul uh, talking about a door has been opened to me. Uh, and, and moving forward with that. And so either way, uh, God is encouraging this church. You are secure. You are mine. Do not allow uh, what, what people think you are or what you look at like, or, or maybe even you're caught in, in going, man, if I was like that other church or had that going for me, man, we, we could do all these things. No, I have opened a door for you. And I am the gatekeeper. I am the door. No one can shut it. I am all powerful. You guys take the gospel and move and spread. And, and I just love that. And what it, what it really encourages me and reminds me with is how when unbelief is, is taking place in my life, all I can see are the challenges and the reasons why I shouldn't do something. See, there's a difference. See, faith, when I'm operating in faith, when I'm, when I'm actually believing those words that Jesus says to this church, when I'm taking hold of that for my own life, then what I see is opportunity, right? And not just opportunity, there's a confidence. I'm safe, I'm secure. And there's also a confidence in if he's opened a door for me to share and to spread the message of hope, the gospel message, then nothing and no one can stand in the way. And so I don't have to fear anything. And so it's the difference in perspective, right? Faith sees opportunity. Unbelief sees only obstacles and excuses. And if you're looking for them, they're everywhere, aren't they? And this church in particular, they had a ton of reasons for uh, not doing it. They're small and significant, all these things that they didn't have, and yet this church was faithful, and they trusted in the one who holds the keys, the one who holds the outcome. And so I want to challenge us. What do we have to fear? What do you and I have to fear? I think of so many times that churches and individuals will miss opportunities that God presents or that God affirms just because of fear or, or just a lack of belief, or just delaying. And he challenges us, he challenges this church to move forward well. He continues here in chapter three, verse nine, it says, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. 
I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, now, listen, if you're brand new to church and you're reading some of these verses for the first time, I'm gonna do my best to unpack it, but this is challenging, okay? It can be challenging. The imagery, the language used can be difficult to to hang in there. But what we see here as he's communicating, you're like a synagogue of Satan. Oh my gosh, what in the world? He's, He's drawing back once again, to these unbelieving Jews uh, who were in that community, just like in Smyrna, who were persecuting the church. Okay, so these are Jews that, yes, physically they're Jews, spiritually they're not, right? Uh, and so he's, he's literally talking about how the enemy, Satan, is using them uh, to persecute uh, the church. And, and I love how Jesus gives them a word of encouragement. He promises, I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to humble these enemies of yours. And the imagery he uses comes from the Old Testament and describes this future day when the unbelieving Gentiles would bow down to the believing remnant of Israel. And so he's drawing back from Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 14, Isaiah 49, 23, and then Isaiah 60, verse 14. Let me read Isaiah 60, 14. It says, The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despise you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Now, there are some that that look at that and look at this section and go, the fulfillment of Isaiah there is here specifically with with the church of Philadelphia. Okay, so there's some that interpret that and go, this is taking place right now with this church. And so there's going to be this movement of repentance because the gospel is going to go forth and they're going to come back and they're going to bow down and surrender to Jesus before this church. Now, if you believe that, that puts you in a certain camp. Okay, now we unpacked the camps this week on the podcast. So, I'm going to save a lot of you today whose heads would be going crazy, and your heads still may be going crazy, um, but um, we break down the different views there, okay? So, but, but there's some that will look at that and say, this is specifically for this specific church at this specific time. Others look at the fulfillment of that prophecy and what Jesus is right now saying to the church, and they say, this is in the future, Okay, this is to come. This is all of the churches of all time. This is, this is that moment that we read about in Zechariah, in Romans, uh, when, when everyone is going to bow down at the end of time before Jesus and declare it. Okay, uh, Philippians chapter 2, 9 and 11. That's what Paul is talking about. When he says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Okay, so others will look at what he's saying here to this church and go, this is gonna be in the future and, 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 he, and, and, that, and he's alluding to when everybody is going to declare that, that Jesus is Lord. Some will repent in that, but others are gonna just do it out of that authority and submission, okay? And so th- there's, there's two different ways uh, that that is viewed. But what we see here uh, in regards to the church of Philadelphia and what's being messaged here is the opposition is not gonna last forever, right? It's a defined uh, amount of time. Uh, it says an hour of, of, of trial. So, so there's coming this day of justice. There's coming this day of justice, or, or judgment. Okay, so that's going to come. And, 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 and what does he promise the church? And this is what's really difficult. Verse 10 here is a highly debated uh, verse. It says this, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Okay, some of you are like, I don't understand. Why is that uh, debated? Okay, well, by how you view it. In fact, Alan Johnson summarizes well the two challenges, the hermeneutical challenges when we come to interpreting uh, verse 10. The first one is this, the identification of the hour of trial. What is that? Second is the, the, the precise sense of his phrase, keep you from the hour of trial. So what does that mean? that he's going to keep them from the hour of trial. Now, both of these uh, involve this ongoing debate among evangelicals, like yourself, uh, over the tribulation rapture question. Okay? Some of you went, ooh, now I'm listening. Okay? Um, Now, what you need to know is when we talk about this, there is not this, they're right and they're wrong. That's of God. That's not, okay? What you need to know is there are good and godly theologians, much smarter than me, who have differing views on this, okay? And and, and so this is not a right versus wrong. In, In fact, I hope to bring this all back to the main point here. But what we need to understand for those of us that are maybe unfamiliar with even those terms of tribulation, the great tribulation and and the rapture, the rapture is the subject of three passages in the New Testament. Coincidentally, none are in Revelation. And I'm going to have them put those uh, references up there for you to either write down or to look at later. Uh, But we see those references, and those are all speaking to what we know as the rapture. And the rapture is when the church, the followers of Jesus, are being taken into the presence of God. Okay? It's, it's when we're brought out of this earthly condition and into the presence of God. We call that the rapture. The tribulation is what's described in Revelation chapter 6 all the way to Revelation chapter 19. You're like, I know which Sundays I'm skipping. Um, a lot. <laughs> Don't do that. But <laughs> and when we get to chapter six, seven, it's funny because like now we're talking to the churches. Uh, next week, four and five is all about worship. And then you go into chapter six and you go, oh. And then it just goes, oh, you know, all the way to 19, you know. And so we're going to unpack that. But that is talking about the tribulation, the trials, uh, that, that difficult time when the world is going to go through these, uh, this, this, these judging, uh, being judged. Now, 
there are three different views that are, that are just important for us to understand and give us some context. There's three different views when it comes to the timing of the rapture in relation to the tribulation time, okay? Uh, and the three different views, one is that Jesus followers are going to be raptured before the tribulation takes place, okay? So before that, the trials and the tribulation is gonna happen on the world, a pre-tribulation view is we will not be here for that, okay? If you're a Jesus follower. The second view is you're going to be raptured midway through the tribulation, okay? The third view is a post-tribulation view, which means we are going to go through that tribulation period, and, and, and a post-tribulation view of this would say that we are not saved physically from the, the wrath, the challenges, uh, the trials, but spiritually we are. So we're going to physically go through it, but spiritually we are not going to uh, walk through that. And so what we see here uh, is this promise in the future that there is a trial coming. It's for a limited time. It's an hour of, of, of testing, right? So there's a defined amount of time and it's going to expose people for what they truly are. And it's bigger than just one church, right? It talks about the whole world. Even that wording uh, can be taken uh, and looking at the context of scripture could be used in a couple different ways. Um, but we see that the purpose overall is to test those who dwell on the earth and, and, and those, when it says those who dwell on the earth, it's people that are not believers of Jesus. So it's going to test those who do not believe in Jesus. And that is that testing in the tribulation of Revelation chapter 6 through 19. But Jesus promised to what? To keep this church. He promises, I'm going to keep you from this future trial. And so a pre-tribulation view says that that confirms uh, that we will not have to go through or endure that. But like I said, some will say this is spiritual safety for this church. It's going to be suffering. It's going to be tough. But God is promising, I will spiritually, you are spiritually secure. You are safe. Now, Something, regardless of how we land on some of these, that this is the main takeaway. The thing that we ultimately have to realize and affirm is that the important issue here is not physical protection from temporary wrath. It's spiritual protection from eternal wrath. Amen? We can get so caught up in the physical that we lose sight of the whole thing. And the reality is this, as a Jesus follower, he says, spiritually, your eternal salvation is secure. I have that. And whatever you go through, I'm gonna protect you from it. And so I can rest in that. There's so much hope in this. And this church, as they're reading this and they're struggling, right? They're small. They, they, they want more of an influence. They wanna be used by God. They're faithful. They're being opposed by these Jews and all of, of the community. And, and, and here they are. And he says, I, I've got you. There is gonna be this time, this trial. It's gonna test the, the, the earth. It's gonna be opposition all over, but I have got you. Your salvation is secure, so for us, what an encouragement. And we're safe even right now from the attacks of the enemy. We're in the future and forever. 
I think that's our main focus from verse 10. Now, the phrase or idea that he's coming quickly, it's not a threat here of judgment, but it's a promise. He's promising them deliverance is coming. And because his coming is imminent, we're told to what? Hold on. Get ready. Titus 2, 13, he calls this our blessed hope, right? As Jesus followers, the return of Jesus. And then he says, there's this crown waiting for you. There's, there's rewards waiting for you. Don't let someone snatch that. Okay, in other words, there are going to be people along the journey that are going to try to hijack your spiritual endurance, your ability to endure. There's gonna be people for you as you try to follow Jesus and you go through struggles, difficulties, doubts, physical, mental, emotional challenges. There are gonna be people that the enemy uses to bring into your life to draw you away from these incredible rewards that God has for you. And so you need to be aware of that. You need to be prepared and on guard against that. And then Jesus concludes this message with a twofold promise to the one who is a victor or a conqueror. He says, first, the Lord is going to make them a pillar in the sanctuary of my God, and they will never go out. Okay, so we know that in the new Jerusalem, that we're going to, the new heaven, the new earth, and when we get there, Revelation 21 is going to tell us that there's no actual uh, temple. It's the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And so when he's talking about uh, a pillar here, that represents a security, uh, a, a structure uh, that, that is immovable. And so he's saying you are safe and you are secure in your relationship with God. And then he promises three times a new name of blessing. They receive the name of God, the name of God's city, and the new name of Jesus. And these names, they signify that I belong to the Father, heaven's my home, and Jesus is my Lord. Those are the names. Those are the names that they have to claim. Those are the names you and I have. Amen? And then we go to the next church, and it says this. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Well, there's an encouragement. That's why you came to church today. Okay, so we see now Jesus address the church at Laodicea. Now, the historical context of this city is very important uh, because that helps us understand the imagery that he uses here. Laodicea was located in what's called the Lycus Valley uh, with the cities Aeropolis and Colossae. Um, and and, and this, was, this was an important city. Two important uh, imperial trade routes that converged there. This city was a very wealthy uh, commercial center. It was, it was known for its banking, uh, the manufacturing of clothing. Specifically, they had this black wool that everybody wanted around the world. And it had this famous medical school uh, that had these ointments and this specific ointment for your eyes that was incredible. And, and, and so we're brought into this influential city, wealthy city. 
And, and, and it doesn't tell us how the church began here. We don't know. But Jesus, once again, he introduces himself and he says the words of the amen, okay? So he's introduced as, as the amen. And, and what he's saying here is I'm the one who's confirmed all of God's promises. I am the amen, right? In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, we, we've seen that all of God's promises find their yes and amen in Jesus. So he says, I'm the amen. And he says, I'm the truth. He speaks the truth. He is truth. He's the source of truth. And he is the faithful, true witness. He's the originator and the source of God's creation. It says, firstborn, you got to know the phrasing there that he's actually talking, I am the origin. I am the source of God's creation. And then he examines the Laodicean church. He goes, so I, I, I see what's going on. I know I'm all powerful. I see what's going on in your church. And there is no encouragement at all. There's no way to go. He immediately rebukes him, doesn't he? And what does he say? He says, man, I wish you were either hot or cold, but you're neither. You are lukewarm. Because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out. That is intense. And, and what we need to understand is this text has often been misinterpreted, okay? Uh, many believe that Jesus means I'd rather you be cold and in opposition to me or hot and on fire for me. But, I mean, just think how hard it is to imagine Jesus saying to his bride, the church, I'd rather you oppose me. No. Um, so it's better to interpret this metaphorical language against the historical and the geographical background of Laodicea, specifically Laodicea's water supply, okay? So when you think of how Laodicea was positioned amongst these other two uh, cities, hot water, in fact, hot springs bubbled up from nearby Aeropolis, and then there was this pure, refreshing, cold water that flowed out of Colossae because it traveled several miles through, these through this underground aqueduct before reaching the city. The water, because they would bring it in from those two places, the water arrived foul, it was dirty, and it was lukewarm. It wasn't hot enough for what you need hot water for, and it wasn't cold enough for anything refreshing. It was useless. In fact, travelers, it's it said in history, travelers would go to Laodicea, and if they weren't prepared ahead of time, they would take a drink of water and vomit it out. It was nasty. And here Jesus compares their spiritual state to the city's water. And he gives them this powerful rebuke. You are lukewarm. You make me sick. You make me sick. You are spiritually lukewarm. And I'm done tolerating it. I'm not going to deal with it anymore. You're misrepresenting the power of the gospel, what the gospel brings into someone's life. You are not honoring that. You're not representing that. In fact, you're deceived. And, and, and the first thing that we need to hear, what they needed to hear was, we have to own up to our true spiritual condition. Okay? You have to start by being honest with yourself. If we're going to talk about walking in truth, you can't walk in truth if you haven't been truthful to yourself. 
right? Uh, so often um, we are completely deceived as to what our true spiritual condition even is. And this whole church is deceived. This whole church here, they have no idea what their true spiritual condition is. And so Jesus says, you need to start by just being honest with what you are. You need to know what you really are and what you aren't. And you guys, I'm going to tell you right now, the things that you are indifferent to, you are going to become ignorant to. The things that maybe were a priority uh, or, or a part of your life or the purpose of your life, but if you've just left it sitting there and you found this rhythm that works for you, you found how often to give to the church, to attend the church, to read your Bible, to pray, you've kind of figured out how to just do it to where, yeah, people know I'm a believer and I'm, I'm a part of the church and you figured out what that is and you leave it there and you just go, whatever happens, I just got to continue to do that, but you move forward. Uh, what happens? happens is what? That stagnates, right? And, and you're not paying attention to it. You're not focusing on it. You're not cultivating it. And so once you start to be indifferent to it, you become ignorant to it. And so you don't even know what's really going on. This church didn't even know. And for many of us in our own lives, that's what we've done with Christianity. That's what we've done with being a Jesus follower. And, 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 and so it hasn't been a focus. It hasn't been an emphasis in our life. And it's just this thing that we figured out how to do. And for, uh, for a lot of us, it's just, how do I do enough? What does enough look like, right? And so then we're there. And, and because we're not thinking about it, focused on it, asking those difficult questions to God, what it does is it stagnates. It just sits. And I don't even notice. And before long, I'm saying, oh, I'm a Jesus follower. I'm committed. I'm all these things. And it has nothing, it has nothing, doing nothing in my life spiritually. He says, I can't deal with that anymore. Jesus says, I'm going to spit this out. When we get to that place, that's when what we start saying about the things about ourselves that we think is true, it's, it's completely different from the reality. And you guys, at the heart of a lukewarm Christian is a deceived Christian. It's someone who's deceived. What were they saying about themselves? I mean, look at this. They're saying, we're rich. I'm rich. Guys, this is a successful church. This is a wealthy church. They probably had all the cool stuff. Uh, they, they probably had the great budget, all these things. People noticed it. People acknowledged it. They say, we're rich. We are wealthy. And then they said, where is it? I hope you never say, we need nothing. Don't ever say that. We need nothing. I mean, just think of the place you are where you're so disconnected from your life spiritually that you go, I don't need anything. They said, they, they said, like, every church should be like us. I mean, that's how they're walking around. That's how they're carrying themselves. And, and they claim to have reached this spiritual status on their own, right? They needed nothing. They needed no one, including the Lord. And you want to talk about a, a major trap for Christianity, uh, especially in the church world, is this. Confusing a, a great church with a great organization. Because you can be a great organization, be well-staffed, handle budget well, and, and do all these ministries and all that. Um, but the difference between a great organization and a great church is the church depends on the Lord. And, and so we see that this church, there was no dependency on uh, the Lord. And Jesus says to them, you are claiming one thing to me, to this community, but you are something else. You're not that. And he says, you're wretched. 
You're pitiful. You're poor. Now, these are people that took pride in their wealth, material wealth. He says, you're spiritually poor. You're blind. Well, that's an oxymoron. They're, they're the ones who are known for the ointments and the eyes and, and, and everything. And he says, you may have all that. You are spiritually blind. He says, and you're naked. Yeah, you guys may be known for your style, your black wool and all of that and take pride in your clothing. You are spiritually naked. And so using imagery and illustrations that would hit them right where they were at, right where they lived, Jesus exposes the spiritual emptiness and the self-deception that is in this church. These are those self-righteous hypocrites. They're the ones who are pretending to be something they're not. What's even worse is they're believing what they're pretending to be. They are deceived. And guys, I think sometimes we can highlight, we, we have like who the hypocrites are, right? It's these people that really look a certain way, sound a certain way, talk a certain way. But you guys, a hypocrite is any of us that is not living up to our beliefs and to what we say we believe. We're all hypocrites. And, 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 and we see also the danger of this, this, we'll call it this Christian worldliness. This Christian worldliness, uh, you, you see, this Christian worldliness uh, is, this, is this lie that essentially I can do the Christian thing and I can just, and I can put it there compartmental and I can do the world thing and, 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 I, and I can be successful in that, right? Without, without investing in that. And, and I can just play that game and do that. What you need to know and understand is that's not even real. Like that doesn't even exist. You may think it's real. You're the only one believing it. Because what we see is, is, is the invitation to surrender your life to Jesus, to be a Jesus follower. So immediately the initial call is what? I'm no longer pursuing that. And so I have to ask, am I one of these Christians who has said, well, no, that was good for then, but now it's okay. And once again, you start to be indifferent to it. That's how ignorance takes root. And, and, and so uh, along this journey, you start asking the questions as you bend on following Jesus, you start bending and going, well, what's enough here? Or I think this is good enough, or I think I look uh, how I should. And, and you start to believe that lie, right? And, and this church had believed that lie for so long that Jesus says, no, that's not even real. You're either pursuing me or you're not. There's not this in-between space. Okay, like, like, guys, I'm not going to go home today and say, hey, honey, I, man, I, I love you so much. I really want our relationship to go in this lukewarm direction. Right? Like, that's an invitation to the couch. Right? Like, no, nobody wants that in any meaningful relationship. But in a relationship with Jesus, we're like, oh, no, we can do that. He's like, no, no. This is what he says. In verse 18, he continues, he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door, knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Jesus instructs them. He says, you need to stop going to your wealth, uh, to each other, to your businesses and all that, um, and all these uh, qualifying tests, whatever you've done to grade how you're walking with me, and you need to go directly to me. I need to be the source, your true lasting uh, treasure that you purchase, that you go to me for that purity, for that refinement. Uh, He tells them, you need white clothes from me, right? The white clothes representing the righteousness that's imputed upon us from the finished work of Jesus. In other words, he clothes us with the righteousness that he won on our behalf. He says, that's the kind of, that's the kind of wear you need to be wearing. That's the clothing. And he says, your blindness you, 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 get, you, you need the, the healing ointment of Jesus for your eyes because you are so blinded right now to your spiritual reality. You can't see. You guys, so many of us, were blinded spiritually. We can't even see it. And we're just blinded because of overtime. And then we're like, I want to see, but we're not taking the steps to actually see. See, God's word promises to be that for us. In fact, in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Like that's what God's word wants to do in your life. It wants to reveal, expose, it wants to encourage, it wants to empower. It wants to tell you what's really going on so you can have an accurate picture of yourself. And so you know what we need to be daily asking the Lord for? And it's a prayer that I don't think a lot of us are asking. It's, it's, it's going to him daily in, in God's word and in prayer and saying, God, show me my true spiritual condition. Reveal to me my spiritual blind spots, my areas of sin that I no longer see. Help me to see myself as you see me. That's a prayer request. That is what helps you to guard from going down that road into that spot, into that dead end of being lukewarm. In fact, uh, Peter talks about how if you're not continuing to move forward, you will lose your ability to see. Uh, look at these verses in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. He says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted, it says, that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Like like we understand how something becomes lukewarm, right? We understand that, right? Like, like, I mean, it's not rocket science, okay? Like if I want hot tea and I start and I let it sit, what happens? It's no longer hot tea, it's warm tea. I don't like warm tea, like hot. And if it sits longer, it gets even more nasty. It's like lukewarm. I don't like that, right? So what needs to happen? More hot water needs to be poured into it, huh? 
more boiling water needs to be boiled to be put into the tea. If you got a boiler, right? You need energy. You need, um, you need like gas for, uh, to heat up that water source, right? I know what happens when the power goes out with my freezer. It once was freezing, very cold, and over time, it loses that coldness. And so there has to be activity. There has to be an energy, right? There has to be fuel to your spiritual walk, right? Because without it, it sits, it settles, it becomes lukewarm. And so the temptation and the area that I see so many of us fall into is once again, we've got it figured out but then it was a one-time thing, or maybe we're like, we're good, like every two years we go back, we figure it out. But, but then we neglect it, and then over time, it is lukewarm, and God says, I will not tolerate it. And, 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 and you're not gonna like that. So you have to continue to put that hot water in. If you want that to stay cool, you gotta continue to dump that energy, that, that, that fuel into that. And you guys, that's why you see in like 2 Timothy chapter one, he talks about you gotta continue to fan that flame. Like it doesn't just happen for you. There's gotta be activity. The church cannot be this closed off thing. And neither can we. Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. So we see this Laodicean church, it was independent, it was satisfied in itself, it was secure, and it begs us to ask the question, are we? Are we? Are we good with where we're at? Are we okay? We don't really need anything. And then, we can't miss this. Do you guys catch this? Amazingly enough, Jesus still loves them. Did you catch that in verse 19? You're so caught up in him vomiting this church, you missed it. And I get it, it's nasty. Verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Those whom I love. You guys, his, 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 his love is just all throughout scripture. His discipline, his reprove here, it's, it's, it's to help them. It's to bring the awareness so they can deal with it. If he's bringing stuff up in your life right now, it's awareness so you can deal with it. The, the repentance is to change. It's to change from doing something. And so he's hopeful that they will change. That's the expectation. He says, I'm bringing this to you because right now you need to deal with this. And right now you need to make some changes in your life. And so our response is clear when he's directing this to us, isn't it? We've got to repent. We've got to change course uh, into doing what he's called us to do. And then we cannot miss this. So one of the most beautiful images that, that, that I can picture in my mind is this. Jesus saying, I stand at the door and I knock. Do you guys see that? I stand at the door and I knock. I am outside the door of the church right now, patiently and graciously knocking, just waiting. If anyone, it says, anyone, not the qualified, not the ones that have it together, not the ones that have figured it all out. He says, I'm just waiting for anyone, any one person that will just notice and let me in. He's knocking at the door of our church. He's knocking at the door of, of your life. And, and, and he's just saying, is, is anybody, I'm patiently there just knocking. It's just seeing if anybody will let me in. And, and, and when he says, let me in, he doesn't say, so I can come in and clean house. So I can deal with you. What does he say? So I can come and dine with you. 
so I can reestablish communion and connection and relationship that we are desperately needing. I don't know why he does that. I'm like, you got the key, man. Just let yourself in. It's your church, right? Just force yourself in. He's like, no, I'm going to wait for just someone to let me in. For one of you to let me into my church. If anyone will hear his voice and acknowledge. Guys, are you, are you willing to let him back into your life? Really? He wants to restore communion with you. And once again, we see him promising to the one who overcomes, the victor, the conqueror, the privilege of sitting with him on his throne, just as he sat down with his father on his throne. And we see all throughout scripture, all throughout Revelation, we see this this joint reign that we have with King Jesus. And so as the son shares the throne of his father, he shares the throne uh, of the son. And anyone who has an ear, he says, this is for you. This is a word for all of us. Are we listening to what he saying, and we have to close our time with just asking, which church are we? Which church are we? Which church are we? Which church are we, Ecclesia? Which church am I individually as the house of God? Which church am I? Do, 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 do we, do I live like he is the key holder, like he has all authority, like whatever door he wants to open, he will open. Whatever door he wants to close, he will close and no one can open it. Do I live with that security? Do I live with that sense of urgency and confidence when I share the gospel? Because just maybe, just maybe he's opened a door through this specific church locally to be a catalyst for a gospel movement. And if he has, what are we doing? Are we believing that? Are we moving forward in that confidently, knowing he has all authority and that no one can stop it? Are, 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 are we lukewarm today? Are you lukewarm? Have you just, man, you've just been deceiving yourself. You've been lying. And internally, you know it. Man, I know when I'm lying to the Lord. It's not like, oh, I think I'm lying. No, it's like, eh. And maybe right now you're seeing a disconnect between what you claim, what you appear, what you say, and your spiritual life with him. You've really been doing nothing spiritually, or maybe just enough. Lukewarm can no longer be an option for you. You're either for or against. And listen, if he's knocking, let him in. Can we as a church let him in?